76, Yukon 360. This is the only podcast in the known universe that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. It's our first episode of 2021. We are coming to you from the three corners of Connecticut this time. My colleague Tyler Silverio is uh, taking a much-deserved break as he is a student. And uh, so it's it's just your old pals, uh, Tom Breen, Julie Bartuka. Hello. And Ken Best. Mansfield Center is functioning today. How about good that? <laughs> I hope everyone had a good new year. I hope you've made lots of resolutions that will be difficult to keep. And so you'll feel bad about yourself this time next year. <laughs> <laughs> no, set measurable goals, attainable goals. That's actually better advice, folks. <laughs> Well, it's been uh, it's been eventful here at UConn. We are a couple of weeks away from the start of the spring semester. Things are getting underway as we plan for that. If you go to today.uconn.edu, you'll see an article about our wastewater testing program, which tests the wastewater on campus for early signs of uh, COVID infection. We started this in the fall. It's actually expanding in the spring. We're now also helping out some municipalities around the state in doing it, and also some other colleges around the state in doing it. A good example of how UConn uh, is kind of doing some community service, community impact stuff in this during the pandemic. Take a look at that. We'll have uh, lots more on UConn today about the preparations we're making for the spring semester. Anything happening in, in the world of Julian Ken? Other ways that we are supporting the COVID battle. I just wrote a story about some Master of Social Work students who are among nearly 100 UConn students that are serving as contact tracers. So as part of their field placement, there are some social work students that are doing the contact tracing for the state of Connecticut. You can read about that at UConn today as well. And I've got another soundbite related to basketball. It's been hard for the players and the coaches to get used to the fact that there, there's no crowds. And we, we, we heard Gino address that a couple of episodes ago, and especially after last week's exciting game in Milwaukee, where we were not that long ago, when uh, UConn came back from an 18-point deficit to win the game, uh, 29-point swing in the game, which is huge. Coach Dan Hurley uh, was asked a question at a recent press conference by one of the reporters, and we can listen to that. Hey, Dan, what's it been like walking out on game night in Gamble Pavilion with a totally different atmosphere? And is it not having the fans, does that kind of neutralize kind of the home court advantage? The home and road records and neutral, I mean, everything feels neutral. Obviously, there's an advantage of, of shooting on the rims and comfortable in surroundings. But, yeah, I mean, these games all feel neutral. It's an eerie feeling on game day. Normally, when the gamble, folks would be filing in. The police and security would be outside. It's buzz. It's game day. They feel, they feel like secret scrimmages is what they feel like until you get in there and then obviously go through your game prep and it gets real quickly. It's eerie, man. All these, uh, it's just, it's strange. <laughs> it's not quite the uh, feeling of the old Big East yet, you know, because of the odd circumstances, but it's nice to have Big East basketball to watch uh, on television, if not in person. It is nice to win. That's and nice. it's nice to win. Definitely. But, uh, you know, it's not all COVID all the time. We are back to normal, and we're, we're doing what we do as a university. So we've got lots of fun things to talk about. Julie, you've got some interesting stuff you want to tell us about. I do. We have another installment of the Brave Space series, which is the platform for honesty and presence, where we invite diverse perspectives on how the university and our society can do the work of becoming a truly welcoming environment, 
not just on paper, but in practice. This week, I brought together a couple different people. Uh, Dr. Sharday M. Davis, who is an assistant professor in the communications department and affiliated faculty with the Africana Studies Institute and INCHIP and some other institutes and centers, one of three faculty coordinators of the new anti-Black racism course that was offered starting this fall semester to all students, faculty, and staff at UConn. And we also talked with Mason Holland, who's a sophomore honor student. He's a political science major with a minor in women's gender and sexuality studies, president of uh, UConn's chapter of the NAACP, community service chair for Brothers Reaching Our Society, public education outreach chair for UConn Collaborative Organizing, and a second-year member and FYE mentor for the Scholars House Learning Community. And we started off by discussing the origins of the anti-Black racism course, which came about when student Gamaira Manigat and alumni Wajinku Gutero um, at a panel hosted by the African American Cultural Center asked why the university was able to designate resources to quickly create a university-wide COVID-19 course, but had not done the same for the pressing issue of anti-Black racism. And at that panel, President Katsileas promised to make it happen. Being a constituent, another member of this community, it was important for me to make sure that I was at that town hall that was hosted by the African American Cultural Center and was really proud, actually, at the way in which the students felt empowered and emboldened to push back a little to the president and to be able to kind of ask that question about how is the university addressing this other longstanding over 400 year pandemic of anti-Black racism? And rightfully so. I think that was a, a really poignant response to him. It was really great to see that the president responded the way that he did and didn't try to come up with some justification why a COVID course is more important, perhaps, or why we don't need an anti-Black racism course, but address the students' needs. He then entrusted that responsibility to the provost, Carl Lejway, and the provost asked myself and Dr. David Embrick and Dr. Milagros Castillo-Mantoya to make it happen. It's important to, to note in terms of how this came about in timeline, because I believe that that town hall was in June. The provost asked us in the second week of July, and the course opened the second week of fall term. It's nine modules. It involves myself and two other faculty of color coordinators. It involves an advisory board with prominent Black leaders across our campus. It involves 11 or 12 or more Black faculty across UConn who contributed to this course. It involves the president responding, the provost. It involves a lot of individuals. So for that to happen in a month and some change, I have to give us a pat on the back for what we were able to do. What was your take on hearing that this course was going to happen? Quite honestly, I hope that UConn's intentional in it. And I think that from the time that I got here as a freshman, I'm a sophomore now, I was very wary about UConn's commitment to actually addressing these things and not just addressing it as, you know, racism exists and slavery happened in Jim Crow, but really doing a deep dive into what is anti-Black racism and how does racism not only exist, but perforate throughout the institutions of this country and the institutions that govern this university. We're trying to pass legislation to make that a mandatory course. I wanted certain topics to be addressed. I wanted to be as intersectional as possible. Uh, and I wanted us to talk about every single facet of what anti-Black racism is in America, what it looks like, and how we change that. And I think that the inroads that this course has made actually breaking apart that culture that we have here and that we have just generally in the state and in the country 
And now the onus is upon us to understand and to make the impact widespread, to actually talk about these things. And we're actually having those conversations as uncomfortable as they may be. Just from the student perspective, us as, as Black folk, we're not a very large percentage here at the University of Connecticut, under 8%. And having a university commitment to actually addressing this in depth, it made me feel more comfortable and it made me feel safer. It made me proud to be at the University of Connecticut, quite frankly. I am someone who always thought, as many of us are saying this year, that I was not racist. And obviously, my eyes are being opened, this, especially this year with everything that's happened in the national conversation to things that I did not know existed and that I was kind of blind to. It was just really amazing to have these things talked about in such a frank way. It's really cool to hear your perspectives and you all highlight things about this course that were the outcome of many, many conversations that we had as we were developing this course. I'm thankful that the provost gave us ample resources for us to make sure that we were creating a course that was unapologetically Black, because there were some things that we were not going to budge on that were not up for negotiation. We were going to center Black voices. We were going to center Black research, because so many of us are doing work that gets marginalized, and making sure that folks know that the contributing faculty are experts on this topic. Another thing that you've been working on, Dr. Davis, is this hashtag Black in the Ivory. You and Joy Melody Woods started this viral hashtag amid the protests after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And you and many, many others shared your experiences as you say Black academics is uh, the word you use a lot. People in a predominantly white academia. So I was wondering if both of you could talk a little bit about some of your experiences from that perspective of just being academics in these white spaces, uh, especially at UConn. Being at predominantly white institutions my entire career as an undergraduate student, as an undergraduate researcher, as a graduate student, and now a faculty person. I think the one thing that I'll say initially is just thinking about my experiences as death by a thousand paper cuts. I think because I've learned so early on being in predominantly white pre-K through 12 educational spaces, how to maneuver very strategically as the only one, I have not been the target of very overt racist acts. But absolutely, research shows that racial microaggressions, the effects of them are just as significant as the effects of overt racism. It's been incessant. The psychological harm that it's exacted on me is significant because of the constant second guessing that I have to do. Did that professor go and ignore my comment, but then when the white person said the exact same thing and applauded? them for saying it was, was that because he just didn't hear me? Did I not word it correctly? Was I not clear? It's a constant internal discussion and assessing that I have to do. And so many other Black folks have to do. It's straining. And in, in fact, it can affect my workload, right? The way I show up in classes, the way I perform in exams, the way I'm able to do my research or to serve on committees and interact with my colleagues. It absolutely has an effect. I had no idea that when I thought of this hashtag, Black in the Ivory, and had this decision to want to go and to use it on Twitter just to share my own experiences, that it was going to engender this kind of a response. And I'm still, to this day, blown away with 
the global response and the conversation that's now happening that wasn't really happening before. To your point, Dr. Davis, I think when you talk about the maneuverability within this structure, I definitely feel survivor's guilt. And I feel it because specifically, I, I can't even count on my hands how many individuals look like me come from the place that I come from that were probably smarter than me, were more articulate than me, that don't have the opportunities that I have. So I think there's a burden in knowing that you're one of the few here. You feel a burden to be as good as you can be so that that door can open wider. And it's, it is it is difficult. But at the same time, I can say that being in the ivory tower offers you a unique ability to look at things in a very specific way and be able to be surrounded by brilliant minds that enable you to draw out different conclusions and different perspectives about certain topics that you interact with. It's always a learning experience. It's one of the most gratifying things to be in a place like this it's a mix of being grateful, but also guilty. And I feel like we always have to have that on our minds and our spirits. Mason, you struck me earlier when you mentioned not feeling safe. And you talked about how having the commitment to offer this course made you feel safer as a member of the university community. What kinds of things do we need to do as an institution? I think safety is in terms of belonging and feeling that I'm not always being persecuted. I'm not always being targeted for just existing in this space, but also physically, you know, existing as a Black man and for Dr. Davis as a Black woman in this country, in this state, at this university. The course makes me feel safer in terms of, you know, I feel seen in academia. I I feel like our issues are actually being talked about in an intentional way. But I think more broadly, the culture at UConn isn't safe for for Black folk. I think in, in the way that professors interact with students a lot of the times, the way students interact with students, a lot of us don't feel the the desire to be in class and participate and, and feel comfortable just in that. And I think that's kind of the double consciousness that comes in when you're in a classroom that you feel outside of, but that you want so desperately to be a part of. Secondly, I think in terms of what's been going on just in relation to the country, I'm also involved in the efforts to defund UCPD. And there's certain issues that I feel like exist on campus related to whether it's substance abuse or whether it's related to sexual assault or mental health, that those are the things that we need to be focused on. They don't need to be policed because we don't address what's actually going on. We need to actually direct capital away from the police department and actually bring it into public safety more broadly to be able to address issues in a more, you know, actually touch the root rather than the branches. And I also feel like the culture, it's difficult because I can't just point to one thing and be like, if this changes, everything's fine, because that's not the truth. It, It takes a comprehensive and collective effort. How do we inspire people to not just change for while they're in college, but also carry these lessons on and these messages and these experiences throughout the rest of their lives? The work starts now. Progress isn't linear. Progress is, is very jagged. There's a lot of kinks in it. But All the work that we do, this podcast, the course, the conversations that we have, our existence is progress. And progress, progress makes me feel safer. Some of these changes, it can't be symbolic. It can't be checking a box anymore. I think we have to really embrace this idea of equity and not equality. And when it comes to equity, there are race-based and gender-based gaps where there are resources that need to be dedicated to Black folks specifically. That's Black students, that's Black staff, that's Black faculty, Black administrators. That is going to require kind of walking boldly and making really bold decisions relative to perhaps other universities, comparable universities across the United States. But in taking a stance and saying, we recognize that 
racism shows up and manifests differently and uniquely for Black folks within the institution, and thus we have to respond in kind in a very unique and targeted and personalized way. There are some things that we can do rather quickly and easily now so we can start to see some change being enacted, but we also can't get um, really complacent in the add and stir recipe like the quick fixes. There, in order to make lasting change, that means it's going to require structural change. And structural change takes a lot of time. Some of those changes we're not going to see until well after many of us are gone. But we're going and we're planting those seeds and we're making those initial steps now, knowing that in due time that there'll be a harvest that, that will be yielded. Uh, that was great, Julie. Thank you so much. And I think that whole course is a really good example of how quickly the university can respond when there's demand from students about sort of a, a major topic they want to see explored in the classroom. Absolutely. And I hope that, you know, as we talked about a little bit, that that becomes something that is offered going forward. And as Dr. Davis and Mason said, there's a lot more that can be done and hopefully will be done too. Ken, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but when I think of puppets, I think of Ken Best. And <laughs> I think it might, it might be fair to say that you are the puppet master, but I know that has different connotations in the world of puppetry. So yeah, yes, we don't need to go there. No. But you have, uh, you have some interesting, you have got a great story for us about puppetry, which of course is a specialty. If you haven't been there, one of the most interesting places to visit at UConn is the workshop at the Puppet Arts Complex at UConn's Depot Campus. It's where puppetry students build their puppets for their own projects and those used in productions for the Connecticut Repertory Theater. Inside the workshop, you can see puppets in various stages of design, construction, and completion. You can also see the materials of every kind that they're used. From fabric, wood, wire, and ping pong balls, those are used for making puppet eyes, as well as just about every kind of tool used on this old house. Uh, puppeteers make their puppets from a variety of materials based on how they want their puppets to move and perform using a thought process much like engineers who develop designs for machines, objects, as well as structures like buildings and bridges. John Bell is a puppeteer, theater historian, and the director of the Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry. From 2007 to 2011, he was a fellow at the Center for Advanced Visual Studies at MIT, now known as the Program in Art, Culture, and Technology, which brings together distinguished artist thinkers to explore art's complex relationship to culture and technology. You may recall that Professor Bell organized a virtual puppetry forum titled Engineering and Puppetry to discuss how puppetry and engineering come together in the creative process. The participants included CRT Technical Director Ed Weingart, who is now serving as interim head of the Department of Dramatic Arts, New York City puppeteer Basil Twist, who is known for his 2015 underwater puppet show, Symphony Fantastique, and Yukon Mechanical Engineering Professor Jason Lee. Professor Bell opened the forum by talking about his experience as a fellow at MIT, working with other artists and the MIT engineering faculty. I realized there, especially working with all these students inventing things and working above the MIT, the model train society, which was fundamentally important for the development of programming back in the day, that combination of play, making model trains work or inventing this culture of performance and play made me think, oh, that kind of play with objects is what we puppeteers do. And then I thought, well, in my own work, designing a structural systems for giant puppets or just stringing marionettes or building hand puppets. It made me think we're sort of connected there. We're, what puppeteers do is a lot about 
making materials work and things move and getting things done through technology. That was sort of my excitement in part about technology and puppetry. Puppeteer Basil Twist received a MacArthur Genius Grant and is known for his elaborate staging of productions using a variety of materials in presentations such as his Symphony Fantastique, which was performed using a 500-gallon tank of water with the motion of the water a key element of the visual effects. He discussed his work. Symphony Fantastique is an abstract puppet show, so it's also kind of pushing the definition of puppetry. To me, this is a puppet that is brought to life by puppeteers, and what brings it to life is that it's underwater. Backstage, how the puppeteers are gathered around the aquarium to, to animate the objects that are in the water. It took a lot of engineering to do this. The water is extremely heavy. When I first imagined Symphony Fantastique, that piece of music has five movements. And I thought, I'm going to do one movement like this and one movement like that. And the third movement I'm going to do underwater. And we'll just roll this big tank into place and then we'll roll it away. That tank weighed well over two tons, the 500-gallon tank. So there were five puppeteers behind, above, and on the sides of the aquarium. And the audience was looking at one side of the aquarium and they couldn't see the puppeteers working. That is a a signature piece of mine. It has informed a lot of other work that I've done in playing with abstraction and figurative stuff, but also just the challenge of the engineering of that. Every theater we go into, that tank is so heavy. We have to be aware of the floor. Are we going to bust through the floor? How do we deal with the water in and out? There were so many engineering issues that came up around that show. I took a note for myself just as a kid when I grew up in in San Francisco, there was an amazing science museum called the Exploratorium. That's one of the like original science museums, um, interactive science art museums. That was hugely inspirational to me in a lot of my work. It had effects that were with smoke and with water and with light. And it was my favorite exhibits were always things that demonstrated basic, basic physical principles with some sort of structural element that in fact was delightful and almost seemed magical. I think that informed a lot of my work. There's another piece also that I just wanna share about too, which relates, I think specifically to engineering is this piece called The Rite of Spring that I did in 2014. So it's Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. It was kind of like Symphony Fantastique on a giant scale but not underwater. I used a lot of fabric and silk and air and smoke. It was performed with a live orchestra and there was a lot of silk in the show and the the scale of the piece was huge for me. But what was thrilling for me in particular was that having the technology, the, the traditional technology of a theater, of a classical proscenium theater with a fly space with an orchestra pit, of course, but particularly the fly space and the line sets that moved and the offstage space, the backstage space. Frequently when I do a puppet show, I recreate that space myself. And here I was able to use that theater technology, that engineering that's been in place for years and years and years and repurpose it 
to really push it to its limits. CRT Technical Director Ed Weingart discussed how he assists artists to bring their ideas to the stage. I've often, and this is what I teach in my technical direction program, that a technical director is more than anything an artist enabler. It's our job to figure out how to take the vision of artists. A lot of times artists don't think about everything that goes on behind the scenes in order to make those things sort of happen. And so it need, they often need someone, not always, but often need someone to help figure out and solve some of those challenges. That's what I've made a living doing. That's what my job is, is I solve technical challenges for artists um, to enable them to bring their visions to life and to create whatever it is in their crazy heads that they want to create. I don't have those sort of visions that um, really talented artists do, but what I do have is the ability to bring them to life. So I really enjoy doing that. Professor Jason Lee described how puppeteers and engineers face the same challenges when designing new projects and why puppeteers can benefit from the same methods that Yukon engineering students are taught. When we think about any types of design, we always try to figure out what questions do we want to ask. And I think there's a lot of common components, right? If you think about puppets, you need to think about what type of materials, what kind of manufacturing processes do you use? How do you control the movements? You probably want to use the puppets over and over. So how do you make sure that they're reliable? Uh, but one big piece that's probably uh, differentiating is that creativity, that storytelling, that aesthetic component, right? When we talk to our students about how do you pick the materials? We talk about you know how strong is the material? How's the material interacting with the environment? Very seldom that we really think about how nice does it look? What colors do we choose? What's the texture? How's the light bounce off of it? And so that's an aspect of design that we typically don't see, but I can imagine that the design process would be quite similar. Uh, our first year engineering class um, that we team teach, uh, we do a Mars challenge, right? So they have to generate uh, their own energy, clean their own water, so we give them limited amount of uh, equipment and, you know, try to see how they think through the problem. And so a lot of times it's really that challenge that first first couple of weeks, how do you even begin? And they're they're stuck with a blank page. As far as puppetry goes, I, my thought process is, you know, what's the range of motion that you want to move this arm? Uh, what are the moving parts? You know, how much weight is held on it? But we also try to implement because a lot of times, a lot of our fundamental courses, we don't talk about the non-engineering constraints, right? The budget, uh, what resource you have to work with, you, you don't have to work with, um, and the aesthetics components. And uh, uh, what we're working with a lot of our students on now you know, in our capstone class, where it's a year-long project, is uh, trying to get them to break down the project into components, right? So you can either be uh, the different components of the puppet uh, or maybe choosing the material, uh, how do you move it, the connecting points. And so we usually do this in teams. And I can imagine you know, none of the work that you guys were working on is probably a one-man team. It's probably multiple, multiple uh, groups working together. And that's a big part of engineering. Once you define the problem, you understand what constraints, what are your requirements, then you can start the prototyping, the fun part of it. That forum was co-sponsored by the Kronicki Arts and Engineering Institute, which you may have heard of. It's a part of the School of Fine Arts and the School of Engineering. It's a joint effort. The Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry is reopened just recently with reservation appointments on Saturdays. And if you want to go see uh, the museum and the exhibits, you can go to 
B-I-M-P, bimp.uconn.edu, and they will do puppetry forums and presentations virtually in the spring semester again. Cool. Very nice. Well, I want to talk about, for Tom's History Corner, I want to go back to a, a, ti- a national time of testing, specifically civil defense testing. <laughs> in uh, May of 1960, the entire country participated in a civil defense exercise designed to test our readiness in the face of nuclear attack or a combined nuclear and conventional attack or just some kind of attack. We were worried about attack back then. <laughs> and, and Yukon played a big role in the state's readiness preparation. So I wanted to give a little breakdown of what this was like for people on campus at UConn in 1960, what this looked like. The centerpiece of this was what's referred to uh, in the Daily Campus as the old music building on North Eagleville Road, and I don't know what that is. Hmm. Um, I'm going to try to find out. I've looked online. I'm guessing it's just a shorthand. They're referring to another building by the name of the old music building, as we tend to do, but I don't know what they're referring to. I'll try to find out. But if you know what the old music building on North Eagleville Road is, please let us know. So this was the headquarters, not just of UConn's response, but the the state's drill headquarters were located at the old music building. All kinds of state officials came to campus, including the heads of all state agencies. Wow. Took up quarters in the student union, Jorgensen Auditorium, and the Little Theater. There were more than 150 state officials uh, present. And then at 2.15 p.m., all students, staff, visitors, and employees were asked to take cover following a blast from the heating plant whistle. Each campus building in this time had air raid wardens assigned to them. So, like, if you worked in a building, you might be assigned to be the air raid warden for mm-hmm. campus. And it was the job of the air raid wardens, after the, the blast of the whistle, to go through and tell everyone to take cover, which meant all motor vehicle traffic had to immediately halt. Wherever you were, you just had to stop the car Whoa! and wait for 15 minutes. If you were uh, walking from a class to another class, you had to run to the nearest building and remain there for 15 minutes. If you were in class or you were in an office, you had to go and wait in a corridor for uh, 15 minutes because in the event of a nuclear weapon, a nuclear bomb, <laughs> nothing would be safer than just standing in a corridor. In the hallway. Yeah. I was going to say, did they crawl under the desks? That was, you know, the common thing, which ooh, really what, uh, what would that do for you? Hold on. My headphones just popped out. Sorry about that. All right. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, I mean... In the event of a, a nuclear attack, obviously none of this would have mattered. Uh, <laughs> stopping, your, stopping your car wouldn't actually have done anything. And what were you supposed to do in the car? You're, you're supposed to just sit in the car and wait for 15 minutes. Can you imagine? Oh, so weird. Um, well, the, the duck and cover was in your classroom. You were supposed to put your head down between your legs and get under the desk. Yeah, yeah. that's going to save you from nuclear weapons. Yeah. Uh, so, But I'll take this up in a future Tom's History Corner. This went so well. Uh, state leaders liked Yukon as a location for this so well that there were plans after this to make Yukon the seat of state government. In the what? <laughs> it's absolutely true. In what the, year was this? The 60s? This was 1960. And they thought uh-huh. Yukon's such a good location for this. In the event of a nuclear attack or Soviet invasion or other emergency, Yukon would become the state capital of Connecticut. I have some more on that cover that in a future Tom's History Corner. But Okay, so they weren't going to make it like permanently. They just wanted, if that happened, right. that would be, that would be Just like, you know, in, in the Congress uh, in Washington, D.C., like they have fallback locations. In the right. Yukon would be the, the fallback location for all state <laughs> government. Hey, it's pretty remote. Um, I guess it makes sense. But they, they and I, I'll get into this in the future, but they put into place all these plans, some of which are really bizarre and would have completely changed the way campus looked. Huh. Um, but those plans never came to fruition. 
but it'll be fun to think, think about. Um, yes, please make sure you follow up on this. So uh, yeah, so anyway, that that's what uh, that's what life was like in America back then. Like suddenly, uh, <laughs> you might just be in a situation where you have to stop your car for fifty minutes in the middle of the day because everyone's going to pretend that this is what we do if there's a <laughs> nuclear attack. <laughs> pretend that that'll save you. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, well there, there were other weird things in the town that I lived in. On Saturdays at noon, they would test the emergency systems by uh, ringing the sirens throughout the town. And so we always thought, well, what if they were actually doing something? We thought it was just a test. Right. right. Well, a what are you supposed to do? Yeah, it's like, it's like whenever you hear a car alarm go off, you think, uh-oh, somebody's car is being broken into. I better do something. No, you just ignore it. No, you say, like, that jerk better <laughs> turn his car alarm off. Yeah. Find your keys. Uh, uh, yeah. Just a last detail from this in, in our, our list of great history corner names. Back then, campus uh, civil defense director was an official full-time position at the university, as it was in many places. And our, our civil defense director on campus was named Colonel Wallace Moyle. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it's a great name. I really should have been writing these down all this time. I'm going to have to go through all our episodes and, and do that. Very nice, Tom. Very interesting stuff. So... That's uh, that's it for our first uh, episode of the, of the year. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back with more episodes. In the meantime, if you'd like to find us online, you can go to Twitter and find us at UConn Podcast. And if you know what the old music building was, please tell us. I'd be curious to know if it's still there or if it was torn down. You can find me at TJ Breen, and you can find old pictures of things that I post from UConn's history uh, at main underscore old. Uh, and please keep reading uh, UConn today, today.uconn.edu. Julie, is there anything you want to tell people to do, instruct people to do? I did, yes. I um, More back on the subject of COVID, UConn Health was one of the first places to be giving out the vaccine. And I know a lot of people have questions about the vaccine. And our buddies over at the UConn Health podcast, which is called The Pulse, which you can find on any podcast app as well, spoke to Dr. David Bannock, who's the hospital epidemiologist and primary vaccine coordinator and senior director of hospital operations, Kim Metcalf, about the vaccine um, and talking about the importance of it and just answering some questions that uh, people tend to have. So that's worth a listen. And I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Ken, how about you? As usual. The show we call Good Music on 91.7 WHOS and Stores UConn Sound Alternative on Saturdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And then, of course, the rebroadcast of the UConn 360 podcast on Fridays at 11 o'clock. Same time every week on the same channel. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Tune in next time. And remember, in the event of nuclear attack, stop your car. You're going to cause car accidents. <laughs> well, you know, in the event of a nuclear attack, I guess that's not the worst thing in the world. 